This is Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefer, and today I'm speaking with Gabriel Zuckman, professor of economics and public policy here at UC Berkeley. He has just co-authored a book with Emmanuel Saez called The Triumph of Injustice, How the Rich Dodge Taxes and How to Make Them Pay. Welcome to the program, Gabriel. Thanks for having me. Why did you write this book? What was the problem or problems you were trying to solve? So the main problem is the rise of inequality in the U.S. So if you look, for instance, at what has happened to income concentration. In 1980, the top 1% highest earners in the U.S. earned about 10% of total U.S. national income. Today, they earn 20% of U.S. national income. Now contrast that with what has happened for the working class, for the bottom 50% of earners. They used to earn 20% of income and now about 12%. So essentially the top 1% and the bottom 50% have, have switched their income share. And the reality of the U.S. today is that the 1% earns twice as much income in total than the bottom 50%, a group that by definition is 50 times larger. So you have this huge level of inequality and this big increase in inequality. And the tax system is a key institution to regulate inequality. And so we wanted to know, okay, does it do a good job? Does the tax system limit inequality or does it exacerbate the rise of inequality. And and as you say in your book, all the way back to James Madison, the whole point of taxes, yes, is to raise revenue, but the other significant point was to reduce inequality. Exactly. That And this, that's something that's been kind of forgotten since nineteen eighty. That's been forgotten despite the fact that it's deeply rooted in American uh, society. The US was created in large part in reaction against the highly unequal aristocratic societies of of Europe in the 18th century. And ever since, many people in the U.S. have been concerned about becoming as unequal as Europe. Europe for a long time was perceived as as an anti-model, too unequal, at least until the the middle of the 20th century. Now it's the opposite. It's funny to see how these uh, beliefs and perceptions have changed over time. Now many people in the U.S. feel that Europe is too equal. But in fact, for most of U.S. history, it was, it was the opposite. The U.S. invented some of the key progressive fiscal institutions designed to limit inequality, to regulate inequality. Let me just give one example. In 1943, Franklin Roosevelt goes to Congress. He makes a famous speech. He says, I think that no American should have an income after paying taxes of more than $25,000, which is the equivalent of a few million dollars today. Therefore, I propose to create a top marginal income tax rate of 100% above $25,000. And that's the idea of a legal maximum income. That's an American 
Roosevelt's invention, and people in Congress, they hesitate a little bit, you know, 100%, maybe it's too much, but they agree on 93%. 93. Which, when you think about it, is not very far from 100%. And then the U.S. kept these very high, more than 90% top marginal income tax rates for a long time. So there is this deeply rooted tradition in the U.S. of using the tax system to limit the concentration of income. The idea being that wealth is, is a good thing for the working class, for the middle class. It provides safety, it provides security. But for the very rich, wealth is not safety or security. Wealth is power. And an extreme concentration of wealth means an extreme concentration of power, of political power, of economic power, which is detrimental to the rest of society. And so one key function of the tax system is to prevent such a concentration of wealth and such a concentration of power from happening. You've been consulting with Elizabeth Warren and others, adopting pieces of some of the ideas that you had. How does Elizabeth Warren's plan, when you plug it into your model in the book, your 1980 model, what was the outcome of plugging in her wealth tax? So Elizabeth Warren proposes to create a wealth tax at a rate of 2% above $50 million and 6% above $1 billion. So just let me explain what this would do. It means that if you have $50 million in wealth or less, you pay zero. One of the things we do in the book, we try to imagine how the uh, U.S. economy would have looked like if such a tax had been in place since 1982. So let me first start with what has happened to wealth concentration since 1982. If you look at the 400 richest Americans, you know Forbes magazine has estimates every year of, of their wealth. And according to Forbes magazine, the 400 richest Americans owned about 1% of U.S. wealth in 1982. And today they own about 3.5% of U.S. wealth. That is, their wealth has been growing much, much, much faster uh, than the economy as a whole and than, than average wealth in the economy. If the Warren wealth tax had been in place since 1982, inequality, wealth concentration would have increased much less. It would have increased a little bit. That is, today, the top 400 richest Americans would own about 1.5% of U.S. wealth, so a bit more than 82, but that would be much less than the, the current 3.5%. So this shows something which is very, to me, is, is very striking. A 6% tax on wealth it's a big deal. You know, it means that someone who has $100 billion has to pay $6 billion a year in taxes. So it's big. And even if that tax had been in place since 1982, billionaires would still have seen their share of wealth increase. In other words, they'd still be billionaires. They'd still be not only billionaires, but multi-billionaires. Some of them would still have tens of billions of dollars because the rise of wealth inequality has been so massive. The growth rate of wealth for billionaires has been so much higher than the growth rate of wealth for the rest of the population that even with a big wealth tax, you know, it would not have been enough to reduce inequality. Well, you give a good example about Warren Buffett. You know, he's always bragging about how, well, I pay taxes. I pay a lot of taxes. Yeah. So Warren Buffett is a good illustration for why we need a wealth tax. He's one of the main shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway. His wealth, according to Forbes magazine, again, is about $80 billion. 
his true economic income is his share of Berkshire Hathaway's profits. It's something like $5 billion a year. That's his income. But what he does is that he instructs this company that he owns, Berkshire Hathaway, not to pay dividends. And so his only taxable income is when he sells a few shares every year of his company. It's a taxable income of the order of 10, 20 million dollars. And on that 10 or 20 million dollars, he pays 3 or 6 million in capital gains taxes. And now you do the math. His true economic income is 5 billion. His tax bill is something like 5 million. So his effective tax rate is essentially 0%. It's lower than his secretary. It's not only lower than his secretary, but it's, 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 it's zero, essentially. You know, 5 million compared to 5 billion, it's nothing. Then you have a number of proposals such as, oh, but let's just increase the top marginal income tax rate, or let's just increase the tax rate on capital gains. But you see the problem. And that's what Bill Gates says you that's should do. That's what you know, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett himself. There is this so-called Buffett rule that was popular at some point among Democrats. And the idea was, we need to increase the, the tax rate on capital gains. Fine, you know, it's not a bad idea, but you have to realize that the Buffett rule itself would make essentially no difference to Warren Buffett's tax bill. Because even if you increase the capital gains tax rate to 100%, let's say, then Warren Buffett would have to pay, let's say, 20 million in taxes, 20 million divided by 5 billion, which again is his true income, would still be 0%. So if you want to tax billionaires like Warren Buffett or like Jeff Bezos or like Mark Zuckerberg, the proper way to do that is with a tax on the stock of wealth itself with a wealth tax because when you're extremely rich it's very easy to own billions or tens of billions while having very little taxable income and so you cannot tax billionaires well just with the income tax you also need a wealth tax gates also argues estate taxes and i like your argument in the book you say well you know fine but are we going to wait around all these years some of these billionaires are very young yeah exactly you look at mark zuckerberg you know he's in his 30s he's not paying much taxes today just like in the Warren Buffett example, because Facebook doesn't pay dividends, Facebook doesn't pay a lot of corporate tax. So is it wise to, to wait for 50 years or more before some of the country's wealthiest individuals start paying taxes? I don't think that's very wise. You know, essentially, because there, there are all these needs for revenue, for you know, early education, for university, for healthcare, for infrastructure. These are immediate needs. And some billionaires can contribute much, much more than they do today. There's no good reason to wait for 50 years to make them contribute. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley celebrating Bay Area innovators. I'm speaking with Professor Gabriel Zuckman about his new book, The Triumph of Injustice, How the Rich Dodge Taxes and How to Make Them Pay. Co-authored by another economics professor here, Emmanuel Saez, they advocate for a progressive wealth tax as a solution to global inequality, one that rethinks both evasion and the goals of taxation. 
you talk about labor versus capital, and I want want you to explain that a little bit because you said for the first time in history, labor pays more than capital. Why do the working class pay so many taxes right now? And that has to do with that labor capital crossover. Absolutely. So historically, the U.S. has taxed capital a lot. The corporate tax was high. The estate tax, taxes and dividends, an interest, property taxes. So there is a, a long tradition of relatively heavy capital taxation in the U.S. The main change that has happened since the 1980s is that these capital taxes have been rolled back, have have been cut massively. So the corporate income tax is a prime example. In December 2017, the Trump tax reform slashed the corporate income tax rate from 35% to 21%. Another good example is the estate tax, which used to generate quite a lot of revenue in the 1970s. Today, almost nobody pays the estate tax, and even the very wealthy who are supposed to pay it can claim valuation discounts and avoid it in many ways so that so that the revenue generated by the estate tax is extremely small. Dividends are taxed less than wages and so on and so on. So capital taxation is essentially disappearing. It has not disappeared completely, but it has, it has been dramatically reduced. And at the same time, labor taxation has increased. So labor taxation, what is it? Taxes on wages, you know, the income tax, but also the payroll taxes. So no matter how low your wage is in the United States today, 15% of that wage is paid in payroll taxes, that social security and Medicare. And these payroll taxes, they used to be quite small, you know, in the 50s, 60s, less than 5% of income, and they've grown a lot. And these are taxes that are essentially only on wage income. And so you have this process where wages have stagnated for the working class, for the middle class. Uh, In fact, at the bottom of the wage distribution, wages have declined a lot because the federal minimum wage has declined enormously since the 1970s. Today, it's only $7.25 number of states and and municipalities like Berkeley have higher minimum wages. But if you look at southern states, for instance, they only have the federal minimum wage, $7.25 an hour, much lower than in the 70s. And at the same time, as minimum wage workers saw their income fall, their taxes have increased because of the big increase in payroll taxes. And I don't think that's a sustainable process. And not only that, the cost of childcare education. I mean, when you think about it, they could be considered taxes on the working people. You know, you're out of pocket for everything and not to mention medical care. And a lot of people do not even have medical care. Absolutely. And that's a very important point. When you look, for instance, at health care, health insurance, it is in effect, a a giant tax today on working families. If you are lucky enough to work for a firm or an employer that has more than 50 workers, the firm has to provide you with health insurance. That's mandatory. And the way this works is that employers pay premiums to insurance companies, and these premiums are enormous. The cost for a covered worker today on average is $13,000. That $13,000 that in effect reduces the wage of employees. 
Okay, that's something that could be added to their wage. For instance, if there was a public insurance program, if everybody was covered by Medicare, workers could get $13,000 more in wages and it would make no difference for employers. These insurance premiums are in effect a huge tax on labor, a huge hidden tax. They are mandatory. Yeah, you call it a poll tax. We call, we call them book. a poll tax or head tax because they are a fixed amount per head. That is, the employer pays the same essentially for a secretary and for an executive, $13,000. So it's the most regressive type of tax. It doesn't depend on income. It doesn't depend on your ability to pay. It reduces wages by $13,000 for all workers, no matter what their wage is. This is a huge problem. It is a, a big part of the reason why wages have stagnated since the 1980s for the working class and the middle class. Their wages have stagnated because employers have to pay more and more to private health insurance companies. And so that leaves less and less money that can be paid in wages. In the democratic debates, why are they not explaining this? They, they seem to defend the, the choice of a private insurance tax. Oh, let people choose. It doesn't sound like people truly understand what they are choosing. I agree. We are trying to explain that in the book and we are trying to explain that to as many people as we can. There are many problems with the way that healthcare and health insurance currently works in the US. But the main problem is how it reduces wages dramatically for the working class and for the middle class. And we have a solution. In my opinion, this is how things should be presented. If you move to a universal public health insurance program, let's call it Medicare for all, what would happen the first year employers would be required to convert insurance premiums into wages. That is, an employer that used to pay $13,000 for the health care of, of its employees would add $13,000 to their wages. So this would be the biggest pay raise in a generation. First year of Medicare for all, everybody's wage increases by $13,000. And then, of course, you need to collect extra taxes to fund Medicare for all. But if these taxes are smart enough, if they are not head taxes or poll taxes that doesn't vary with income, but rather if they are taxes based on your income or your wealth, or if you tax corporate profits, you can make sure that the, the new tax would be much lower for the vast majority of workers than, than the extra wage that they gained. Uh, and so you can make sure that 90% of workers would benefit uh, from a transition to Medicare for all in the sense that they would have a huge wage boost. They would have to pay a bit more in taxes, but the extra tax would be much less than $13,000. So in my way, that's the proper way to explain Medicare for all. Your wages have stagnated. Big part of the explanation is there's so much money that goes to private health insurance. There's going to be a law that says all the premiums are converted back into wages. Part of your wage was stolen. Now we're giving it back to you. You have a huge wage boost. We're going to raise taxes, but in a progressive manner, so that the bottom 90% of the income distribution has a big net of tax pay increase. With a wealth tax, it seems like the taxes for middle class and lower class would actually go down, even paying for Medicare for all. Yes, that is 
if you include current health insurance premiums in your measure of the tax rate, which I think is legitimate since these premiums are essentially like private taxes, mandatory payments, and if you abolish these premiums and replace those by progressive taxes, you get a big tax cut for essentially 90% of the population. And that's something no one's talking about. Not yet. Not I'm not yet. losing hope. One of your most interesting chapters is on tax evasion and tax competition, which is going to be a challenge to any kind of change to our tax system. Can you talk about what you discovered? And actually, it goes back to when you were working as a young man at Exane. Yeah, so many people have that view that in a globalized world, it's impossible to tax multinational companies, impossible to tax corporations, because if you do that, they will move their profits to tax havens, the Cayman Islands, or Bermuda, or they will move their factories or their headquarters, their production activities to low-tax places like Ireland. And so according to that view, the only possible future is the race to the bottom with respect to the corporate income tax rate. So countries slashing their rate one after another. And we are very much in that situation today where countries are all slashing their corporate tax rate. And for a long time, I thought, okay, you know, this this makes sense. I, I understand why in a globalized world, you know, countries want to attract some activity by offering low rate and there's going to be tax competition and there's a huge pressure uh, that pushes towards lower rates. But what we understood by doing research, that the research that's summarized in the book is that this view is actually wrong. That is... Tax competition, just like tax avoidance or tax evasion, these are not laws of nature. These are policy choices. So we've embraced, as nations, collectively we've embraced a certain form of globalization, which is characterized by tax competition and tax avoidance, but that's a choice. It's not a very democratic or very transparent choice, not a very well-informed choice, but it's a choice that's been made, and we can make other choices. There's another form of globalization that's possible. There's no tax competition. There's no profit shifting. There's, there's much less tax evasion. So the way this would work, for instance, is this. Right now, if you are a U.S. multinational company and you book your profits in Bermuda, for instance, where the corporate tax rate is 0%, you don't have to pay taxes. Bermuda chooses not to collect taxes, and the U.S. essentially doesn't tax the profits booked by its companies abroad. Okay, that's, that's a choice, but we can make another choice. We could say the U.S. is going to tax all the foreign profits of its companies is going to collect the taxes that other countries choose not to collect. If Apple, for instance, books a billion dollars in profits in Bermuda, taxed at 0%, and that the corporate tax rate is 30% in the U.S., the U.S. is going to tax that billion dollar uh, at a rate of 30% in the U.S. If Apple books profits in Ireland, taxed at 2% in Ireland, the U.S. is going to collect 28% so that the total rate would be 30% on a country-by-country country, uh, basis. So that this, would change everything. So that, that changes everything because then it removes any incentive for firms to book profits in tax havens or to move real activity to low-tax places, one. And second, since firms wouldn't have incentives anymore to do these things, it, it removes any incentive for tax havens to offer low tax rates in the first place 
now they will have incentives to actually increase their tax rate. And so you see how you change the race to the bottom into a race to the top. Yes, and manufacturing might start to happen more in the countries that had previously been taking them offshore. Exactly. And what might also happen is that instead of competing by offering low tax rates, as countries do today, a very negative form of international competition, we would move to a more positive form of competition where countries would compete by providing the best infrastructure for companies or by having the most productive workforce thanks to good universities, good schools, good hospitals. So that's how globalization could look like. You know, it's it's good to have some competition, but the form of competition that we have today, which is, you know, countries are competing by slashing their rates. It's a very negative and, you know, bad form of competition. We could have a much more positive form of competition once you put taxes out of the picture. So this would require cooperation amongst countries and just the will to do this. And look, there's already a lot of international economic cooperation. We've made a lot of progress, for instance, when it comes to trade agreements. Some of that is is unraveling today with the Trump administration. But if you take the longer view, we've made tons of progress in terms of reducing tariffs, in terms of facilitating access for Access to data, which helped you with this book. Exactly. In terms of access to data. So there's There is international coordination, but the problem is that there's way too little coordination on the tax rates themselves. So, for instance, when countries talk about free trade agreements these days, these free trade agreements are essentially about property protection, protecting the rights of of foreign investors and and dispute resolution settlements. So, you know, how to protect the, the rights of investors. But property cannot come with only rights. And, and no duty. No property also comes with the duty to pay taxes. And so the way to make progress, to, to reach an international agreement on, on taxes, in my view, is to put taxes at the center of free trade agreements. Is to say, we are not going to sign any new, any new free trade agreement if it's only to guarantee new rights to investors and ignores taxes. Any new free trade agreement should have taxes at the center stage. And that's how it would become possible to make quickly a lot of progress in terms of tax coordination. And that's also true when you think about the constitutionality of any tax reform here in this country. It's going to require the will and the cooperation of our legislatures. It can happen. Yeah, it can happen because the current situation is 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 similar in many ways to the discussion during the Gilded Age in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Inequality was rising a lot with industrialization, with urbanization, you know, huge fortunes were being created. And second, the tax system was very unfair. At the time, the the only or the, the biggest federal tax was the tariff. So taxes that essentially exempted the very wealthy and that, that made you know, the price of goods uh, more expensive and so that hurt the, the working class, the middle class. The situation today is pretty much the same. Inequality is rising a lot. The tax system is less regressive than, than during the Gilded Age, but it is, is much less progressive than what people think it is. During the Gilded Age, you have all these debates about the creation of a, a progressive federal income tax. The 16th Amendment, 1913, allows the federal government to levy progressive income tax and 
it was a huge success. So the income tax very quickly became extremely progressive with rates you know, in 1917 of uh, close to 70%. So it's, it's a huge change in just a few years. 1912, there's no income tax. People say it will never happen. It's unconstitutional. You know, there's no way this is going to become reality. And then in 1913, the constitution changes. In 1917, 70% of marginal income tax rates for the highest earners. So I'm not saying that the same process is exactly going to happen for the wealth tax today. But when I look at history, I see dramatic U-turns and changes and reversals and retreats. So the history of taxation is far from linear. There is progress. And that's what fundamentally uh, makes me optimistic about the possibility uh, for change and, and for reform. Well, when area. 50% of the population makes $18,500 a year, it's untenable. You created a website, taxjusticenow.org. That's all one word. We developed this website to make the tax debate more democratic because it's not for economists, it's not for experts to say what taxes should be. It's for the people through democratic deliberation and the vote. And we want to give the tools, the knowledge to the people. So it's a tool for the people to simulate their own tax reform. It's user-friendly. It's very simple to use. Everything is, is transparent. It's fully open source with all the code, you know, online for folks people who want to dig into this. But the website itself is extremely simple. You don't need to be an expert or to know anything about economics. What the website does is two things. One, it shows how regressive uh, the U.S. tax system is today. When you take into account all taxes paid at all levels of government, the website shows what's the effective tax rate for each group of the population and how it has changed over time. And then you can change taxes. You can change, let's say, the top marginal income tax rate. You can change a corporate tax rate. You can create new taxes like a wealth tax, change the rate, change the exemption threshold. And the website shows how this would affect the progressivity of the tax system, one. And second, it shows how much revenue would be collected. So let's say you want to fund Medicare for all, or free college, or student debt relief. These things have a cost. And there are several ways to fund these things. And so the user can very simply see, okay, with that combination of taxes, with that tax reform, I can collect enough revenue to do these important policy changes. Obviously, you guys have plugged in all the numbers and come up with the ideal type of tax, and you call it the national tax. Can you describe that and how it might be different from or in addition to a wealth tax? The idea here is how do we fund universal public health insurance, and more broadly, how could the U.S. increase its tax collection in a sustainable manner? The way that European countries do this is with value-added taxes, which are taxes essentially on consumption, better than sales taxes, but still pretty regressive because they're only on consumption and the rich consume only a, a small fraction of their income, whereas the poor consume most or even sometimes more than 100% of their income. And so what we are saying is, look, the U.S. doesn't have to introduce a VAT, a value-added tax like other countries. It can leapfrog the VAT and create a new tax, which, like the VAT, can collect a ton of revenue, but can do it in a much more progressive manner. 
and we call it the national income tax. And so the idea is, for instance, if you want to fund Medicare for all, step one is you convert the, the premiums into wages, and so everybody's wage increase by $13,000. Step two, maybe in year two or in year three, you create this new national income tax, which essentially is a tax on all labor costs and all profits made by corporations. So it's the broadest possible form of income taxation. And the beauty of it is that because it's so broad, with a tax rate of only 5%, you can generate a lot of, of revenue, enough to replace all the the insurance premiums that employers pay to, the, to insurance companies. And you can increase the rate you know, to 6% or 7%, and that generates a lot of revenue that can be spent on early education, an area where there's nothing in, in the U.S. in terms of public spending, essentially. Some municipalities uh, do spend some money, but the U.S. is at the bottom of the international ranking when it comes to uh, public child care and early education in general. So that's a high priority. It's easy to collect a percent of GDP with that national income tax to fund universal early education. It's easy to collect an extra 1% if you want to make public universities free. Much more progressive than, than anything else that exists. And it's still less than what I would be paying today. Of course, yes. That's the beauty Way of less. It. That's the beauty of it because today you're paying so much in, you know, for childcare, for college, for health in a way that's very unfair because it doesn't depend on your income. It's the same amount essentially for each individual. Essentially what's at stake is the future of globalization and the future of democracy. If globalization means ever lower taxes for its main winners, big multinational companies and their shareholders, and at the same time, higher and higher taxes for those who don't benefit a lot from globalization or sometimes suffer from it, retirees or small businesses, then it's not sustainable, neither economically nor politically. The problem with high and rising income and, and wealth inequality, as, as the founding fathers themselves you know, understood at the time, is that excessive wealth concentration corrodes democracy corrodes the social contract. And we're seeing this today when you look at, for instance, what has been the main piece of legislation of the Trump presidency so far. It's been a big tax cut for, for wealthy individuals. So you've had three, four decades of rising inequality. And then on top of that, a, a law that adds fuel to that phenomenon. And it's hard to analyze this other than by saying that it's, it reflects a form of political capture of plutocratic drift. That's the reality of, of the U.S. today. And so if democracy is to prevail, and if we want to have a more sustainable form of globalization, we need to tackle this issue of tax injustice. Thank you for being on the program, Gabriel. Thank you so much for having me. The book is The Triumph of Injustice, How the Rich Dodge Taxes, and How to Make Them Pay. The website, taxjusticenow.org. And you also have a profile in the October New Yorker, which is really great reading. So thanks again for being on the program. You've been listening to Method to the Madness, a biweekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. 
Today's guest was Gabriel Zuckman, Professor of Economics and Public Policy here at UC Berkeley. We'll be back again in two weeks 